0: Father, we come before you together tonight, grateful that you have given us this day, this Lord's day. Grateful that you have given us this opportunity to open your Word and discuss this great topic that is not uh, not only theological in nature; it comes right down to where we are, and who we are, and how we are saved. And so tonight, as we look at the covenant of redemption. As we look at Your Word and see uh, where You speak of such a topic, I pray that You would bless us. I pray that You would draw us uh, to worship You, even in our time tonight, as we see Your great love and great care for us, as we see Your work uh, from all eternity in our redemption. We are grateful. We worship You and bow down before You. And we pray that you would bless our time tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are going to be talking, as I said, going to be talking tonight on the topic of the covenant of redemption. And before we get there, I just wanted to take a moment to review, just so we're all up to speed. We talked a couple of weeks ago about... The Covenant of Works. Can someone uh, help us remember what the Covenant of Works uh, is? You don't have to get it verbatim, it's okay. But if you do, you get extra points. What is the Covenant of Works? Andy. Okay. And so we see who the two parties are. You see it's it's God speaking with Adam. In that context, Adam was not a private person. He was a public figure standing in our place. And God said to him, Uh, Here are, uh, here's my command, right? He says, don't eat of that tree. If you do, you will die. Which we understand, had Adam obeyed in that instance, the reward would have been life. Disobedience to that command brings the consequence of death, right? And so we look at the covenant of works, we see who all is involved in it, Uh, we see what the stipulations were we see what the promise uh, was and the flip side of the promise uh, and we see the consequence that came from it because, of course, we know uh, how Adam did in regard to that covenant, that he broke it, right? And in his breaking of the covenant, um, we saw that the consequences of that came upon them, Adam and certainly Eve, but really upon all of their posterity. All of those who are in Adam uh, inherit the consequences of that, which means uh, inheriting death, right? So that's the state we're born in. And so we read in Ephesians chapter 2, read in other places in the New Testament, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Why is that? It's because we're born in Adam, right? So, covenant of works. And we talked last week um, about. Uh, another covenant. What covenant did we talk about last week? Covenant of grace, right? Covenant of grace. And how did we um, explain the covenant of grace? What is the covenant of grace? Mandy? Uh, That's right. That's right. So we said essentially, what's that? Yeah, yeah so the, the exchange happens there, right? So essentially what we, the way we boiled it down is that Christ fulfills the covenant of works on our behalf and we get the credit for it. right? All of those who are in Christ by faith receive the credit for a completed covenant of works, essentially, right? Because we have Christ who obeys and we have Christ who pays the penalty as if He had not obeyed, right? And when we, are, uh, when we um, are in Christ, we see that that exchange happens where our guilt was what He paid for. And His righteousness uh, is credited to us, right? And so we see that uh, whereas the covenant of works was an agreement between God and Adam, where Adam represented us, we see that the covenant of grace is a covenant between God and Whom? The elect, right? All those who are in Christ, right? So it's between God and the elect, and we saw that uh, for all those who will repent and believe, that's the stipulation, and the promise is that you will essentially receive credit for a completed covenant of works. You will receive righteousness, forgiveness, uh, peace with God, uh, eternal life, right? So those are the two covenants that we've talked about thus far, and uh, those are those are they, they work together. Uh, there's something that they have in common. Not only are they both covenants, but they are covenants that uh, work themselves out in history. They are covenants that take place in the course of history. They're given in the course of history and they work themselves out in the course of history. so it was after creation, not long after creation, but it was after creation the covenant of works was established between God and Adam. That's in history, and we see how that plays out in history. It's an historical covenant, right? Likewise with the covenant of grace. We're going to spend more time discussing uh, the covenant of grace and how it uh, how it plays out, et cetera. But essentially, it's promised right there in the garden. Right after the fall, in Genesis 3.15, you have the first promise of the covenant of grace. God's saying He's going to accomplish this. Now that promise is in seed form. Uh, there are not a lot of uh, details included in that, but it's a, it's a covenant that is established in the course of history, or it's promised in Genesis 3.15 in the course of history, and we see it play out. And so this also is an historical covenant. Today we are going to talk about a covenant that is different from these covenants in this sense. Whereas these take place, were established and take place in time, there is a covenant that is pre-temporal. Now it's hard to talk about something before time because when you talk about time you're and you say before that, then you're including the time language, but Uh, We're limited in that way, and that's okay. We're talking about the covenant of redemption. Okay, The covenant of redemption, whereas these two are historical or temporal, we might say. It's not really the best word. Maybe historical is better. This one is pre-temporal. Okay. It's established before time. It's established before creation. Okay. And we will see how this covenant relates to these other two covenants. But this is the one di- distinction I want you to notice. If you'll turn, as we've turned before, to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1 speaks very uh, in a way that is very intriguing. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, this is Titus chapter 1 and verse 1, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, In hope of eternal life, so Paul is introducing himself in his letter, etc., and the topic he's discussing. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. There was a promise made before the ages began, and he continues and says, basically, uh, that's what I'm preaching right he says that the proper time was manifested in his word through the preaching with which i have been entrusted by the command of god our savior he's talking about a promise that was made before the ages began which caused us to raise the question to whom did he make the promise who existed before the ages began only the triune God. Only the triune God. And so as we're thinking about this covenant of redemption, recognizing that it is pretemporal, recognizing that it includes promises, which we've seen in all of the covenants that we've looked at, we recognize that this covenant, this promise and the lang- used to use the language of Titus chapter one and verse two had to have been between the members of the Trinity. So we we say it's it's an intra-Trinitarian covenant. It's a covenant between the members of the Trinity. Father to the Son to the Spirit, etc., right? So we call this an intra-Trinitarian covenant. This is the covenant of redemption. In this covenant of redemption, uh, we're, we're going to examine a few passages tonight that, that talk about a covenant relationship existing between the members of the Trinity. And so uh, the rest of our evening is going to be devoted to just basic, simple Bible study, looking at some passages, seeing if we can recognize elements of covenant in a pre-temporal fashion between the members of the Trinity. And so... Uh, Just to get us started, what are the elements that we recognized in a covenant? Parties, Parties, right? What was the second thing? Promises. Promises. Okay. And then stipulations. Sorry, my writing is getting worse the lower I go was never very good at limbo. All right, stipulations, right? Parties, promises, stipulations. Last thing, I heard you say it. A sign or an oath, right? We called it an oath sign, actually. I'll flip it around, but it's called, we called it an oath sign, right? And so these are uh, the elements of covenant that we observed when we looked at the historical uh, the undisputed covenants in Scripture, the Mosaic, etc. And uh, we saw also in looking at the covenant of works and the covenant of grace that these elements uh, exist in those as well. And so when we talk about covenants, we're going to see these elements present. Right? So what's going to happen tonight is as we look through a number of passages, we will want to see if we can identify parties involved. Promises given, stipulations made, and the presence of an oath or an oath sign. Okay. Let's go to a very familiar passage: Isaiah chapter fifty-three, verse ten. Very familiar. Uh, many of you can quote uh, this passage. It's it's uh, powerful. It's it's dear to us because it points us to Christ. It talks uh, hundreds of years in advance about what Christ will undergo, about what he will experience. Things that uh, even, even if you didn't know this was Old Testament or didn't know this was Bible and you read it, you would think, oh, that's about Jesus, right? And so, um, but we want to look tonight uh, specifically at verses uh, 10, 11, and 12. Okay. So if I could have a volunteer to read for us nice and loud, Isaiah 53, uh, 10 through 12, please. Thank you, Mark. All right, thank you, Mark. So when we're looking at these verses and read through them, what jumps out at us is Christ redeeming us, Christ's redemptive work, and that's what really jumps out in all of Isaiah chapter 53, of Him standing in our place, of Him being punished for our iniquities, we see that again and again in this passage, that he's the one who stands in, he's the one who bears the punishment, and we end up being redeemed as a process, uh, as a result of this, right? And so um, that's what jumps out at us. But what I want us to recognize tonight, and something perhaps that uh, that, that you haven't noticed um, and that, that uh, we might better understand in thinking about this tonight, is thinking of, think about the Think about the evidence that we have in these three verses of a transaction. The evidence, perhaps, of a promise or promises, or the evidence, perhaps, that we see in this passage of service rendered and payment given as a result, a task being completed and reward being given as a result of the completion of that task. You see that language in here? We see, starting in verse 10, we see it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. Right? So God's plan, God's will, was to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. Now, first of all, do we see parties involved? Who are the two parties we see here? God the, God the Father and the servant, right? Which we know is Christ, the Son, right? So we see two parties involved, Father and Son, Father and Servant. And what's happening here, we see that that in, in, this, inter, in this exchange, this interaction, it is the will of the Lord to crush Him. God is going to crush the servant. He's going to Put the servant to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, so we have the idea here of his, uh, his being put to grief, his, his being crushed is for the purpose of making an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Those last two parts. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Are those positive, encouraging Are they positive uh, ideas? Are they are they uh, rewards perhaps, or at least something good that comes out of it? The other stuff, at least for the servant, doesn't seem good so far. Right, the servant is being crushed. The servant is being put to grief. He's making offering for guilt. Right, that's what the servant's doing. But here we see he shall see his offspring. There shall be a result. There shall be something that comes out of it that is rewarding. He shall prolong His days. Of course, we, with uh, the perspective that we have after the cross, after the resurrection, realize this is an indication of the resurrection. That yes, He's making this penalty. He is crushed, but His days shall be prolonged. There's, there's life. There's, there's length of life after that. There's, there's light after that darkness of being crushed. The will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand that God is accomplishing His good purposes by the crushing of his servant out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied you see it's not only suffering it's not only being crushed there is good that comes out of it there is something that his soul sees and is satisfied from there's a reward that is given for his Having been crushed, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You see the exchange that Mandy was talking about? By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. So he's the righteous one. Because of him, in the knowledge of him, shall many be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, what does therefore mean? It's drawing a conclusion based upon the stuff that's gone on before. In light of those facts, here's something true. Here's something that's based on those other things and now we draw this conclusion or this result comes from what came before. Verse 12, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Therefore, reward to him. He's done the work. He's he's undergone the suffering. He's been punished. He's done those things. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because... He poured out His soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. You see, He paid that price. And He was rewarded with something that came uh, from the Father to Him. He was given a reward. He bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So you see that you've got this, this interaction between Father and Son between father and servant in the language of here. We know that's Christ. Where there are works being done, there is suffering being undergone for the purpose of redeeming sinners, bearing the penalty for their transgressions and giving righteousness in exchange. And when He does that, when He undergoes those things, when He has accomplished His work, then as a result in payment, the word here is therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. He comes out on top. He receives benefit. He receives reward for the work that he rendered. Right? And so I think uh, perhaps when we think through this section of Scripture, we rightly rejoice in the redemption that's pictured there. And we see that great exchange and we see all... That that is involved in Christ paying the penalty for our sins. Yet, something I hadn't noticed in this section of Scripture and in many sections of Scripture is the fact that there is a payment made by Christ. There is a, a work being done by Christ that is then rewarded with this huge blessing, this huge benefit. And so, in the terms we talked about here, we saw that there are two parties: father and son, or father and Servant, that there are promises being made. He will see His offspring. He will prolong His days. He will be satisfied. He will receive those spoils. There is reward and blessing. There's promise that comes. But what are the stipulations? What does He undergo? What is He going to take upon Himself? Well, of course, He's, he's going to become obedient. That's the... Uh, Active obedience of Christ, even to the point of death on the cross, a passive obedience we might say there in verse... Uh, in uh, I'm sorry, I've, I've, I've moved on. Um, we see the stipulations here. The Lord crushes him and puts him to grief. He makes an offering for guilt. He undergoes anguish. He poured out, pours out his soul to death. He's numbered among the transgressors he bears the sins of many and he makes intercession for transgressors those are the stipulations those are the things that he does this is an agreement between father and son where the father makes promises and he makes stipulations on the son and the son is to carry those out you see that language in there yes does he overcome separation uh, in, is there something in this passage particularly that's or just in general, just in general. Like, I, I don't see it here yeah like oh, overcome separation in separation from god. But our separation from god oh yeah absolutely he, he's going to restore us that's exactly the process because part of back here when we go to the language If, if we're, um, yes, so we're just focusing here on this passage uh, momentarily, but uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps, perhaps that's the, that's the, the meaning of that there. So yes, in, in, in the overall course of the teaching of Scripture, for sure, there is that, that's how He can be our God. Only by the, the recovery of that, the disunity, the separation that came here with death, thus we're... <laughs> <laughs> but no, you're right. It's just in this passage, perhaps with that possible exception, um, it's these other things being focused on. But um, I think, actually, if we even look at the, uh, the, the rest of the servant songs... If we look at the rest of the servant songs in Isaiah, we might see that, that notion going on. All right, all right. turn to uh, Philippians chapter 2. Because we saw some of these things being hinted at. We saw some of this stuff uh, being spelled out. We certainly saw actions and, uh, and rewards, actions on behalf of the servant uh, that, that were required of him. And we saw that the um, rewards came to him from the father. Uh, But we're going to see it more clearly in a passage that's familiar to everybody. Philippians chapter 2, if I could have someone read verses 5 through 11, I would appreciate it. Nice and loud, please. All right, thank you. So, very familiar passage, and uh, uh, we'll try and uh, think about it tonight in terms of a relationship, a covenantal relationship, where there are promises and and rewards, there are stipulations, there are parties involved, etc. We want to think through that and see if we see those elements here in this passage, because my what I'm trying to indicate is that similar to Isaiah 53, this. Philippians chapter 2 passage is describing for us the relationship, the covenantal relationship between Father and Son, particularly in regard to our redemption. That this is, uh, this passage is giving us a peek into that covenant particularly between Father and Son. Right? And so a very familiar passage we see, um, first of all have this mind among yourselves. So He wants us to to learn from this in our own attitude etc. But it's the peek into Christ Himself that is, uh, that is prime for us to see right now, right? So this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in, in Christ Jesus. Uh, verse 6, we begin to see stipulations. Who though He was in the form of God did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So we see What Christ undertook, what He came to do, the thing He was, the process, the the work He was sent to do, and what did He undergo? What were the stipulations as we saw them spelled out here, if I'm right that these are stipulations? Well, He took on flesh. He became one of us. We're talking about the Incarnation. Right, At least in this part right here, this aspect that's, that he's doing, that he's undergoing, is to become one of us. We've not seen the whole thing play out yet, but you can see that he, um, he went through that process, that he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, clung to, etc. Instead, he, he uh, though he was in the form of God, uh, he, he emptied himself by, become, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So we see the incarnation as an aspect of one thing that He's doing, one thing He's undertaking. Look at verse 8. We see another stipulation. Being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So not only did He become, take on human form, not only did he, was He incarnated being born as one of us, but being found in human form, He humbled Himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right? So it, it what He has undertaken is greater even than only the incarnation, which, which is amazing that God Himself would take on human form, would be born as one of us. That's an amazing humiliation for the Son of God to undergo. But even more so, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We have a description here of the ministry of Christ. Of His obedience, His obedience to God, all the way to the point of Dying in the place of penalty, to the place of taking upon himself the penalty for sin. Do you see the covenant of works, him fulfilling it? He's obeying, he's doing what God has commanded, and he's taking on suffering, he's taking on bearing the penalty, though he himself didn't earn that penalty. He has taken it on for us. And so as we describe the covenant of grace as being the fulfillment of the covenant of works and given to us, we see Jesus obeying and thus keeping the covenant of works and we see Jesus going to the place of the person who has broken the covenant of works to pay the penalty that they deserve, the penalty of death. We see Jesus doing that. And so uh, we have this great description. Being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see what Christ has undertaken. You see what He has done. What about the very next verse? We have the stipulations. We have the active obedience of Christ. We have the incarnation first, active obedience. We have the passive obedience of Christ. What about the rewards? What about the promise? Therefore, in light of what Jesus has done, in payment for... In return for what Jesus has done in being incarnated, obeying and obeying to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what's the reward that he receives? Glory, exaltation. He's highly exalted. He receives the name that's above every name. He's the one to whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and to whom every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is is service rendered and there is payment received i know that language sounds kind of crass and i don't mean to use crass language but to use the language here of the covenants there were stipulations that he undergo certain things he did those the promise was if you undergo those things this will be what you receive and this is what he receives he did those things he he underwent that humiliation and that suffering and that penalty Which sounds very similar, by the way, to Isaiah 53. Therefore, having done so, because he did so, God highly exalts him and gives him these promises. Right? You see, it's the language of covenant and covenant fulfillment. Right? Now you say, well, I see that both Isaiah 53 and Philippians chapter 2 are pointing to the fact that Jesus did these things and received certain reward from them. But does that indicate to us that it's a covenant relationship? Does that indicate to us that Jesus was sent with that mission and given the promise that if He was sent with that mission and He completed that mission, that He would receive the promises, that He would receive the rewards? Let's go to John 17. We've already looked at John 17. But it's an important one for us to think about. These passages are so familiar to us. We've read them so many times. Maybe we've not recognized the covenantal language that is in uh, each of these passages. John chapter 17. If I could have a volunteer to read verses 1 through 5 nice and loud for us, please. All right, thank you. So we looked at this passage a few weeks back and it's an intriguing passage because we've seen by looking at other passages that Jesus came and did these things and received a certain reward afterwards. But this passage here shows us that in fact the Father had tasked the Son with this. They had covenanted together with the Father giving the Son this assignment. Go and do these things. Go and do this work. In turn, the Father promises to the Son certain rewards. That's covenantal language. We're talking about a covenant. We're talking about uh, uh, the covenant of redemption. And so we see uh, Jesus, uh, this is right near the end of Jesus' ministry. He's just about to go to the cross. He's just about to complete the work. He's right on the cusp of completing all of this. After all of these years of ministry and all that has gone on, He's just about to go to the cross. He's he's speaking and saying, now is the time. And so what does He say? He lifted up His eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The Father sent the Son with work to do. And Jesus says, now is the time. Now it is complete. In this time, in the next few hours, in, in the next few chapters of John, he's going to go to the cross, he's going to pay that penalty, and then he will be raised from the dead three days later. He is, he is finishing that work, all of that work that he has, that he has put in, as, as, all that he's done, that he speaks so much of throughout John, where he's saying, um, I've come to do my Father's will. He's saying now it's done. It's done, and so now... Glorify your Son. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, verse 4. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence. You see, he's saying, you gave me a job, I did the job. You gave me a mighty work, of, a, a, a soul-saving work, a church-redeeming work, and I've done it. I have done my part. I've done what you gave me to do, what you sent me to do. Now, Father, now that that is done, now that that is completed, now, Father, verse 5, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see that there is work that has been assigned to the Son, a work of redemption, a work that He has now accomplished and in return He's saying, The job is complete. I have done all that you asked me to do. I have completed all the stipulations. Now's the time for me to receive the promise. And so we see that there are two parties. We see that there are stipulations. We see that there are promises. And we see it again and again throughout Scripture. And so what we're seeing here is a peek into what Paul is talking about in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2 and, and in other places that we read in Scripture, second, uh, in other places in Scripture we see this covenant of redemption being referred to. A discussion, a promise being made before time. And we're getting a peek into it right here. But, maybe Uh, This division of labor that we're seeing uh, between the members of the Trinity, and particularly we've been looking at Father and Son, though the Spirit has His work as well. We see division of labor, but does that truly mean covenant? Is that truly covenantal language? Wouldn't we want to see perhaps stronger covenantal language? Well, uh, Isaiah chapter 42, if you'll flip back there, uses interesting language. Again, this is the servant speaking. You'll never read the servant songs the same again. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 6. The Lord here is speaking to the servant and He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I have given you for a covenant to accomplish their salvation. Or turn to Luke chapter 22 and verse 29. Luke 22 and verse 29. Uh, starting at the beginning of the sentence, uh, verse 28, You are those who stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you. Does anybody have a different translation than the word assign? Grant? The New American Standard says grant, right? And I grant to you as my Father assigned, and yours says grant, granted, to me a kingdom. That word grant, that word assign, is, is the same word for covenant, it is to give a grant in a covenant arrangement. It is to, to give as a promise, a covenantal promise. The word, the Greek word for covenant, is diatheke, and this is uh, that comes from the verb diatithemi, and that's this verb you see here: to give, to grant in a covenantal agreement. It's not just a simple gift. It's a gift in this kind of context. And that's what we have Jesus saying there to, uh, to the disciples there in Luke chapter 22 and verse 29. Right? So we do have covenantal languages, language again and again if we needed that covenantal language. But as we talked about with the covenant of works, the fact that we don't see perhaps this phrase... Perhaps that we don't see uh, the, the, as much, perhaps, language of covenant as we might like in regard to this pre-temporal arrangement between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not a problem when we see that it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck. We see all of the elements involved, the parties involved, the stipulations given to the Son from the Father. The promise is made that when the Son completes the stipulations given by the Father, there will be reward. And we have seen what that reward is. What about an oath? Do we see an oath? The resurrection? resurrection? Uh, Perhaps. I think we can see uh, probably one that's more explicitly related. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Here is a quotation from Psalm 2 and verse 7, verses 5 and 6. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. So also Christ did not exalt Himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by Him who said to Him, You are My Son, today I have begotten You, easy for Me to say, right? Right? And uh, and then a quotation from uh, if you look at Isaiah chapter excuse me Psalm 110 of verse 4 could I have someone turn there for a moment please Psalm 110 of verse 4 Which we see in verse 6. Psalm one ten four read it out nice and loud for us. will not change his You are a priest forever according to the of He's he's sworn, is that an oath? If you swear, is that an oath? Yes. If you swear, it is an oath. The Lord has sworn two things. He has sworn in this passage in Hebrews chapter 5, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He calls that an oath in Hebrews chapter 7 and verses 21 and 22. We have the oath language. God was swearing an oath causing this to happen. He was giving His own oath. Uh, a sign is not really what we're looking at in this instance, but we're seeing that God has sworn an oath. Uh, we look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 21. This one was made a priest with an oath. By the one who said to Him, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever. And this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Do we have covenant language? We have covenant language all over the place. We're talking about the covenant of redemption. In the covenant of redemption, given before time, between the members of the Trinity. We've looked uh, most particularly at the Father and the Son, and that's appropriate. But a, a, a covenant between the members of the Trinity, given before time, before the ages began, uh, 2 Timothy 1.9, Titus 1.2, wherein this arrangement was arrived at. That Christ would come in the covenant of grace, fulfilling the covenant of works and giving us the credit. In return, Christ Himself receives the elect as His own. Christ Himself is glorified. He's exalted and given the name that is above every name. This is the arrangement that was made before time, before history, that played itself out historically in these ways, that we see play out even now historically in these ways. That is the covenant of redemption. It's this overarching description and explanation for why these things happened. Now here's where this is glorious, as if it hasn't been glorious so far. Before time, I, I'm not. I don't. I don't want to speak crassly. Um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were discussing you to redeem you. What will be involved? What will be undertaken? How will it be accomplished? What must the Son go through? What must the Holy Spirit do? What rewards will the Father give for you? That's the nature of the covenant of redemption. What a glorious, wondrous, gracious truth that God in eternity past was having this discussion, willing to go through all of this, desirous even to do so for your redemption. If that's not humbling, nothing is. And so when we talk about the covenant of redemption, this is a a very dear and precious subject for us. This is a devotional subject for us. This is worship-inspiring, awe-inspiring, wonder-inspiring discussion and study to think about God. The, the, the triune God in eternity past planning together your redemption. And by the way, with God there is no plan B. This is His plan A. And this is what He is accomplishing. And we see it happening in our lives. We see it happening with those who are being redeemed. What a wondrous truth is the covenant of redemption. Let's pray. Father, we are astounded that you, our triune God, would discuss and plan and covenant together our redemption. Before we were created, Before anything was created, before time, then You decided our redemption. Father, You elected those that You would save, and You sent the Son on a mission to undergo the, the obedience that would be required, to undergo the humiliation that would be required, stooping down and taking on flesh. You, Father, sent him to suffer. And he agreed. And you, Father, promised him reward for his doing so. You promised him that you would exalt him, that you would give him the elect, that you would give him, in fact, the name that is above every name, that you would, that you would glorify him. And, Father, you sent your Spirit to empower his ministry on this earth. You sent your Spirit as well to, to redeem us, to apply His redemption to us and draw us to Yourself that we would be redeemed. And together You work to return us to Yourself. We are secure because of Your work. We are humbled and we worship You. And we are a grateful people because we get to be in Christ, reconciled to God. I pray that this would inspire worship in us. I pray that this would inspire a greater awe and wonder at this salvation that we have. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.